0: Welcome to this episode of Backs the Point. I'm your host, Rick Goulding, from BC High's class, illustrious class, famous class of 2004. <laughs> and today on the pod, we have Tanner Gilday of Cohasset, Massachusetts, and most importantly, of BC High's OK class of 2015. I'm just kidding, 2015. I'm just messing with you. But I, I got to spend some time with Tanner, and we talked about what he's been up to recently, which is pretty cool. He's been doing some data and analytical work for the Biden campaign. And we talked about what brought him there, his time at BC High, his family, uh, some of his fondest memories of being in Luxembourg. Yeah, Luxembourg. I said it, Luxembourg. I think this is probably, yeah, no, this is definitely the first time we talk about Luxembourg on the podcast. So that's a pretty cool first, I guess. But anyway, let's get to it. Here's Tanner. said in my introduction, welcome to this episode of Back to the Point. Today, I'm very, uh, very lucky to have with me Tanner Gilday, who's a graduate of the class of 2015, and we're recording this on a bitter, bitter cold Friday. Tanner is in Cohasset right now, and I'm in Norwell, but uh, unfortunately, we couldn't do this in person, so we're doing it virtual, uh, virtually, I should say. Uh, Tanner, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Rick. Excited to be
0: here. No, it's great. Thanks for coming on. So the first thing I want to talk about is so you you grew up in Cohasset and my understanding uh, from Mike O'Brien is that you're you're one of four boys in your family, is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah. We have the lucky fortune of of all four of us going to BC High. The youngest is a senior this year. So BC High is just about rid of us. But we're <laughs> we're all two years apart. So I graduated in 15. And just since then, um, you know, there's always been at least a few guild days. At BC High for the past decade or so.
0: So, so two two questions on that. First and foremost, it sounds like you're the oldest. Is that right?
1: I'm am, I'm am definitely the oldest.
0: Okay, what what's it been like being the oldest of you know three brothers essentially?
1: Yeah, I mean it's always it's always been great fun. Um, we actually grew up in Luxembourg. I, you probably didn't know this, but I spent five <laughs> years in Luxembourg, yeah. and uh, you know no one else spoke English. So growing up, we were very insular. So we, we always had each other. Um, and then coming back to the States, you know, was definitely a shift for us. And it was nice to all be at the same school, you know, through Arupé and then BC High. Um, There's always, you know, someone to commute with to the train when we were taking the commuter rail. Um, and there was always someone else, you know, in the halls, at least one of us at the same time. Um, I'm not yeah. sure how fun it was for all of them to be following behind me at all the times. I'm, I know there was some griping about that, but it's definitely been, you know, it's competitive, but also, you know, there's always that support system um, having just so many brothers behind you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so Luxembourg, um, what years were you there kind of in, in during your life and uh, why were you guys there?
1: Yeah. So it was part of my dad's job. He works in banking and finance generally and Luxembourg's a big capital for that. um so it was roughly from the year 2000 to 2005. so i was just you know around four to nine years old when i was there so pretty young i don't remember too much but it's fun to look back and see videos of me you know like speaking french in the school play just because you know they threw you into it and you had no idea what you were doing or um my third brother aiden he just was plopped in a Luxembourgish kindergarten, like no English whatsoever. So it was a really great experience. Um, we were able to meet, and we still have a few friends who are French. We meet, we met people, you know, from all across the globe, um, and there were just a handful of other Americans with us there. So it was really interesting to be this family of American expats living, you know, just with a few other American families. But then still meeting, you know, essentially this global cohort of friends and other families who are all transplants to Luxembourg itself.
0: That's really interesting. Um, I know you said you didn't uh, you don't remember too much from that time. But what's what's your most indelible memory uh, from being in Luxembourg with your family?
1: Mm. I think the 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 one the thing I remember the most is there was always in August. There was this fair called Chuba I think that's how you pronounce it. I honestly haven't thought about it in a long time until you asked me that question. Yeah. But they would come and transform this park into this uh, essentially amusement park. And the great thing about the Europeans, at least compared to like the Six Flags of of the U.S., is that their their kind of their safety rules are a bit more lax. Like in terms of what children are allowed to do, you know, what they're allowed to eat and what they're allowed to, you know, what rides they're allowed to go on, etc. So that was all. That was to me just like great fun. And it actually, coming back to the States, we became season pass holders to Six Flags for like at least 10 years. Um, so that's really a great memory of just going to all these various European amusement parks, both in Germany and Luxembourg and France um, with my brothers. That's probably the best memory I have of the place.
0: That's cool. No, I, that, that's, that sounds like a lot of fun. Um, one thing I wanted to touch back on, you said that um, for, for a time, for significant period of time now there's always been a a day at bc high Uh, right and um what so your your final brother is a senior you said right yes
1: yeah so
0: so what's i guess i guess the question is what's that like for you knowing that the kind of the gilday reign if you will Mm -hmm. uh, is coming to a little bit of an end but what's it like for your parents as well i mean that must be kind of uh, sentimental to a certain extent.
1: <laughs> well, it's um, one less tuition check is one thing I know that they're going to be excited about. Yeah. Um, but no, I think like on the whole, we've just been, we've been very, very happy and fortunate to go to BC High. It wasn't something that I went to Cohasset through sixth grade. It was something that was not long planned. My dad, like my parents didn't go to uh, private or Catholic education growing up. Um, it was just something that was, at least to me, I remember being kind of spur of the moment and my brothers followed and and we've really enjoyed it. I think the thing that I know my parents first talked up and that we definitely came to realize ourselves is the unique uh, moral education I'd say that BCI provides. And especially it's its uh, commitment to service that it instills in its students um, the religious aspect to a certain degree as well, I think that the overall like we 've just been very fortunate to have had the experience
0: yeah no <clears throat> um, that 's a, that's a running theme with everyone that I talk to, so I, I hear you and it, did you start in the Arupe division in come Yes,
1: I think it was just the third third or fourth year of arupe I think, so seventh through high school.
0: That's amazing. I uh, I'm going to date myself for a second here. When I graduated <laughs> in 2004, um, there was no rupe division.
1: It didn't right? Exist. No. Yeah. No. It didn't exist.
0: Yeah. So to be talking to someone who went through the whole the whole, the whole process, thing, who then old, has three right? younger
1: brothers, who then has three younger brothers who's done the same.
0: Yeah. I'm Sorry, feeling a little old. You're making me feel old. Um, but that's. That's all right. Uh, I guess I deserve that. So, can you talk a little bit about your experience, kind of going through BC High as one of the first three, whatever, handful of classes um, that went all the way through Arupe through high school? What was what was that like? And kind of coming into something that was brand new, not only to you but to the school as a whole.
1: Yeah, I I remember. I think well, Arupe. So Arupe was about half the size, I think of ultimately my graduating class which was i think around 320 330 students so it was a smaller group of kids i think the biggest just change of going from kohasa to Rupe was the commute how long your days became you know going into boston like boston as in hitting as far north as umass point um and then once we came into high school, all of a sudden your class doubled and there were all these other students. And I think, you know, at least in my experience, most of my friends were also from the South shore, not too many from Cohasset, it's a smaller town to start, but a lot from, you know, Situate and Hingham, essentially all these kids on the same commuter line who you got to know first over the, the first two years of Roof Bay, and then all of a sudden it swelled in size to high school. Um, Mm -hmm. and along the way you started to meet kids from all across Massachusetts, who you just would never have been exposed to, um, unless you, you know, had been involved maybe in high school sports or other types of academic tournaments, et cetera. So, you know, in my experience, I think it was great one for just the exposure to the number of kids and, and the, the variety of places they had come. But also, you know, I just I fondly remember the the teachers so much, uh, just a few specifically um, that I still think back to today.
0: Yeah, no, the teachers there are fantastic. I mean, that that's absolutely true. We'll we'll get back to the teachers in just a second. I'm curious when you went from Aruba to the high school, and Mm -hmm. you had this core group that uh you had gone through a rupee with and now you added all these all these new guys um into the mix was there was there ever like the ogs versus the <laughs> new kids like was there any yeah. of that dynamic
1: no there are definitely they are definitely the ogs um <laughs> but you know the thing at least for me in my experience i every year i seem to have a few like new friends a different friend group and i don't think that really settled for me until later into my high high school time, definitely like junior senior year, and even senior year, I remember making new friends and experiences like Kairos. I remember being um, important to that. So, to there, there's no there was definitely no like if you weren't in a rupee, like you weren't allowed in the 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 groups that existed in a rupee. Continue to change, and there was definitely room for. Um, more people to be added in high school, especially because there were a lot of kids who would come in in high school who had been friends with these Arupe students from their home or from, you right. know, something else, yep. you know, especially, yeah. And
0: in, and in that vein, when you were, when you were in the Arupe division and you knew you were going to be going into the high school, mm-hmm. um, were you doing any lobbying of your friends back <laughs> in Prohacet and Situate and saying, Hey guys, you come to BC High, you should come to BC High or Yeah, you, yeah. You were- I mean, I would I would
1: always um I would always give a great recommendation. But like I said, I think, and for people who know me, they know this to be true. You know, I when we came back from Luxembourg, that was third grade for me. And then I was in Cohasset for four years. But honestly, like Cohasset is a is a town with probably had a hundred kids in my class. Mm-hmm. Um, I had just had a very different initial life experience. And it was it was pretty challenging for me to honestly make friends um, and really like find a, a spot in in the class and i think that's part of the reason why bc high came on the radar as just like a change for me so there weren't too many people who i was specifically lobbying to come yeah. to bc high and ultimately i'm not sure if there really were many more additions after rupe from quasset itself Gotcha. But, you know, there were kids who I knew from, I played a uh, situate football growing up who came in, uh, into the high school that I knew. So there were always some people, but no one, I wasn't, you know, running a full, full on press to get anyone in. <laughs>
0: That's great. Um, so you just talked about, uh, a little bit about something that you mentioned that teachers, um, some specific teachers are, um, some of the things that you remember that that stick with you from your BCI experience. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? You know, feel free to shout people out on the spot, you know, yeah. everybody does it and it's fun. So um, you know, who are those teachers and what are some of the things that you remember most?
1: Well, I, I will feel bad if I like just shout out a couple and leave some, but you know, there were a few that.
0: We can, I think- you know what we can do, we can just say, this is not an exhaustive list. Yeah, this, this is, is this is no
1: this is by no means a full exhaustive endorsement list, but <laughs> I remember there were a few subjects that I liked a lot, and there were a few teachers who not only I think were great teachers academically, but were really there to form you as a person, and took it upon themselves, I think in a, in a good way to, you know, you know they would shelve maybe the academic lesson for the day if if warranted, if they found that they could, you know, speak on something that was happening, or if they just, you know, someone did something that they found to be a teaching moment. So I know in Arupe at least, um, like uh, Rita Hajar was my French teacher. And I mean, she'll laugh if she ever hears this, but she did scare the heck out of all of us. But we, we really respected her. um, Learned a lot of French on the way. But also, I think, Uh, it came full circle when she was my AP French teacher, I think junior year. So I started with in a group with her and then somewhat towards the end of uh, my time in high school had her again. So that that was a great teacher who again did scare the heck out of us. Um, Also in French, uh, uh, Madame Becker-Galias who unfortunately passed away. Um, We had her and then one week she was out of school and we didn't know why. And unfortunately a year later, um she passed away from cancer and that was really tough i know for the school community for me personally but again a fantastic teacher just a great community member someone i'll always remember um and on that i remember she told me once that tanner you seem to be like you try to be too perfect or or something like that like try to like lighten up or or you know just relax and i i really took that to heart um and after BC High, you know, in college, definitely uh changed my ways a bit. Um, Kara Brennan, swim teacher, is a boss. Uh, Mr. Chapman in, in the root bay, who I never actually had was great. Um, there are, are so many teachers. Um I again don't wanna have an exhaustive list here. I'm I'm, not, I'm getting nervous. I need I should have came prepared. I should have No, 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 no. No, that's great. No,
0: that's great. I uh uh, there as as you said there are so many it's it's so hard because even when you know when you're talking about uh n- n- different teachers names and things uh the impact that they had on you my mind is running through the list of um you know folks who who had the same impact on me and you're right it's once you get going you can just keep going and going and going so um
1: and the, and the danger is you know christian who's senior he, yeah he's still there he's, he's like,
0: <laughs> no reprisals up. none <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, no, I hear you. Well, let's just give a general shout out to the teachers at BC High. Because, general
1: shout-out. Yeah. Yeah,
0: you guys are great. And and uh, you know, as you can hear and with me and Tanner and so many others, uh you have a tremendous impact on everybody that you uh come in contact with at the school. So um so uh all right, so you were at BC High until 2015, you graduated. Um and from as I told you, I I I took a peek at your LinkedIn profile. Um I know, I know you ended up going to Harvard uh, for four years after that. Uh, What, what was, um, what was the kind of the process for you? What was it like for you uh, at BC high kind of working on applying to colleges and then ultimately deciding on Harvard? Like how did that all work out?
1: Yeah, so actually that's that's a huge oversight on my part. Shout out to Katie Griswold who is no oh, longer BC Griswold. Yes, the best. Um She's
0: incredible. Yes.
1: And and honestly, I think I to- I just tormented her for a year. Like I I in retrospect, I feel, I feel so bad. Like I was not the student that deserved her time and I took up way too much of it. Um Well,
0: the, I think she the, the, the cool thing about Katie Griswold is uh, she was always, she always found a way to give everybody time. So I don't think you should feel bad about that. Right. It's like she manufactured time. She had time for everybody.
1: Right. No, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how she did it, but she, I mean, she was a great help. Um, it's, this is a, this is a a story that, um, some of my high school friends know and made fun of me for it's long in the past and actually wound up in the senior superlatives. But, i had wanted to go to yale for some reason and i applied early and i got deferred and then ultimately i got denied and in the senior superlatives i got the most likely to go to yale award so that was like this like this is the nerdiest joke in the world but um i actually so i i just kind of cast a wide net i i um my my dad went to Notre Dame and my mom went to St. Mary's across the street. So my family is a big Notre Dame family. And Griffin, the second, is a senior there this year. Okay. Okay. And so it was kind of like growing up. Notre Dame was like the only school that existed. Um, I was the first in the family. So I didn't have any uh, brothers or sisters who had, you know, applied to college before me. It really wasn't on my radar until, you know, BC High put it on my radar, probably junior year. Um. And in retrospect, I think that was that was a really healthy way. Um, I know that just even now it'd be impossible to not enter high school knowing that, you know, everything you kind of do, unfortunately, you know, starting freshman year, your your grades, et cetera, kind of count towards college to to a certain respect. Um, and I never really internalized or processed that because there just there wasn't that much pressure at home and I didn't have any older siblings. And, you know, Notre Dame was the only school that mattered and that my parents ever wanted me to go to. So, come senior year, you know, putting in the applications, definitely trying to go to some really great schools that are never, never a sure thing. It's always a lot of luck and chance to get into. Um, but I was really fortunate to get into Harvard, uh, some other schools, Notre Dame. Uh, when I went out there, they played Rudy for us on the last day, like to really get us uh, hyped up about it, you know, <laughs> all the lore and the mystique of the school. But at the end of the day, like, I think it was really good for me to go to a school that was different from BC High. You know, it, was, it, would, it would be great to continue in that Jesuit or Catholic tradition, you know, at a place like BC or Georgetown or Notre Dame or, you know, all the great other schools that BC High kids go to. But, um, you know, both for the academics and just the diversity and of thought and people that a place like Harvard offers, I think was, you know, it's hard to turn it down.
0: Understood. Yeah. I, I, um, I totally get that. What I don't get as a BC graduate <laughs> <is> your, <laughs> yeah, sorry. for Notre Dame. So I, I don't know about that, but that's fine. We can move on. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, so you went to, um, you went to Harvard and I noticed that it looked like during your time at Harvard, um, you did some work for, uh, the attorney general of New York. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right. I, um, that was the summer after my junior year. So it was actually my first real intern experience, internship experience. And I know BCI has a great internship experience, just plugging that here. Um, and that was in New York. So the attorney general, every, every state has an attorney general. Um, and depending on the state, they can either be very powerful or, or somewhat weak, yep. and that was actually through, um, Harvard has a public service internship program for its students in the summer, so you would apply through that. Most of these, unfortunately, public service internships are unpaid, um, and they should all be paid, but in this case, uh, the school was able to provide funding for me to go, so I lived in, you know, Chelsea with the four of my other roommates from school. uh, And for two months, I was an intern at the attorney general's office. Mm -hmm. And it was really neat because, you know, when you think of an attorney general's office, you have the attorney general who's elected and a bunch of lawyers running around, you know, doing everything from uh, prosecuting Medicare fraud claims to, you know, suing the federal government on constitutional issues. But the New York attorney general's office has a very forward thinking um, and innovative research and analytics department and small team, just like six to eight people, but that's where my internship was. So it was a way to both, you know, kind of conduct the somewhat legal and just general qualitative research um, that I was looking for. And I studied, you know, mostly at school, but also to dive into this world of data analysis and how can data help you inform, you know, public policy decisions, legal decisions, all these other applications that you can derive from quantitative analysis.
0: So uh, that is a theme that we're going to move forward. Right. With. I'm
1: trying to, I'm trying to, <laughs> trying Look to work it out.
0: Look at you setting me up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, beautiful. But what I want to do before we, before we continue with that theme, um, I was. I want to touch on. Um, it, it clearly, you. It sounds like you have uh, a passion, an interest, of, a kind of a, a real deep understanding of uh, data and data analytics and things like that. When did you know that? You know, when did you know that that was kind of you know something that you wanted to um, really dig in on and, and pursue and, and to kind of be part of your professional um, skill set.
1: Well, ac- actually, I think the first the first commitment was to public service in general, and then in this yeah. case, it became you know, at least in recent experience, it was democratic politics. But I think the f- the first data was more by chance. Yeah. Um, the first thing was you know, from all the way from BC High through college, the focus on service for others, being a man for others, you know, Catholic social teaching servant leadership, all these themes that BC High tries to bombard you with and hope it sticks, did stick. Um, And I knew I wanted to work in public service. Okay. And it just so happened that that was the New York Attorney General's internship was one of the more interesting and you know, I wanted to be in New York City, it's just by chance that some of these things work out. Because I hadn't actually studied any data science or analytics before that internship. Mm. And Uh, so that, that was it, that, that was the reason that I got involved. And honestly, after the internship, I said, great, but maybe not for me. I, you know, I liked, I'm a somewhat of a people person. I like to be, you know, out talking to people. I've, you know, considered being a lawyer. I've considered a lot of other things. Um, but then senior year of college, I took a few more courses more formally in data science and that's when it really became interesting to me that's when i started to realize hey there's this real opportunity for people who you know want to do public service to combine kind of this burgeoning field with their interests um because frankly there are just not there aren't that many people who have this technical skill set um who will opt to go work in oftentimes you know lower paying jobs or you know, less sexy jobs than, you know, Facebook and Microsoft and Twitter and all the name brands that everyone wants to work for right yeah. out of college.
0: Yeah. So uh, so, so the driving force was public service, but also you found this interest in data analytics, but you needed to mix it with some person-to-person interaction, it sounds like. Yeah. So I know that you uh, eventually came on to be an organizer for Pete for America. Right. Right. Can you talk about what it was like getting into, you know, coming into that position and you know, what drove you and uh, you know, then I'd love to hear about your actual experience being an organizer.
1: Yeah. So the, the the data science took a pause essentially for that. Um, I knew since the 2016 election, you know, elections have consequences and personally 2016 didn't go the way I wanted it to. And I knew I wanted to be involved in 2020. I had never really been involved in electoral politics. That, w- that wasn't the game plan, um, but that's what happened. Um, so I knew that upon graduation from college that I wanted to join a campaign. And if you remember, there were about 200 candidates running and I had to decide who, to, who I wanted to support. Cause you know, you have to, at the end of the day, you know, there'll be a nominee, but in the primary system, you have to pick one. Um, so the spring being in college in Boston, it was really great because New Hampshire as one of the early primary states, gets a lot of visitors from these presidential hopefuls. And in the spring, I was able to go up and volunteer my time at these events for a number of candidates. Um, it's funny because Pete, Pete Buttigieg's uh, communications advisor, Liz Smith, uh, who's, you know, just did fantastic work for him, a great upstart, called into one of my classes, my political science classes in the spring to promote him. None of us had heard of him. After the class, we were like, yeah, good luck to this guy, not a shot. And then after I you know, listened to him and he came to New Hampshire and I went and volunteered, I said, wow, I, I actually, I really like this guy. I think this might be my guy. Um, I went up a few more times. I volunteered for Joe Biden really funny story there about how i drove our car onto the to uh, a private tarmac to pick part of his entourage up uh for another time um <laughs> and then all, all you do is you show up you just have to show up that that is like what people told me and then you do it and eventually after graduation i was able to get hired on as an organizer um so it's not great advice in the time of covid but for people who are trying to get out, involved and i'm i know this goes beyond just electoral politics, but you really have to just show up, you know, pick up the folding chairs, you know, work a rope line, do all these things that these like small meet and greet political events that um, matter. And if they have the space, you know, you show up, they brought me on. And, and it wasn't until actually August after graduation that they had the budget um, and the availability to hire on additional organizers. So that's, that's when I joined the campaign and moved up to New Hampshire.
0: And what, what, talk about some of the things that you did as an organizer.
1: Right. So, or like organizing is this very nebulous term, but I mean, at the end of the day, the goal is to get the most votes for your candidate. And when you say organizer, that's probably the job that 90% of people on a campaign are doing. And when people think of campaign staff, they're probably thinking of organizers. They're the people who, you know, come to your door and promote the candidate. They're the people who call you incessantly, um, send texts. But essentially what an organizer does and what I did is you're assigned a, what's called turf, um, a specific geographic area in one of the states. And you move there, you actually live with a supporter of the campaign. So like free housing to kind of make up for the less than optimal wages that campaign staff are paid um and it's your job to kind of recruit and cultivate a team of community members who are supportive of your candidate and who they themselves you are trying to uh kind of teach up this laddership of leadership to recruit and form their own teams of volunteers so it's kind of like a pyramid scheme um <laughs> but at the end of the day you know you have this very fixed end date, which is the election. So there's a, there's, there's a deadline, a very hard deadline. And, uh, you're trying to organize and manage a team of volunteers and outreach to voters, um, and embed yourself really as much as you can in a local community or set of communities.
0: That's cool. I, 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 uh, in a former life, I would have joined a campaign. I, uh, I'm a little bit jealous. I think that sounds like a lot of fun. Um, so uh, eventually uh, you made a transition over to the Biden team um, and, and did some some uh, data analytics for them um, in Wisconsin. I was hoping you could talk about that transition, but also some of the work you did in that, because obviously Wisconsin became a very important Um, kind of tipping point uh, in the election that occurred in in this past November.
1: Yeah, it's uh, and it it did turn out to be literally the tipping point state, um, very close, very close margin. I think it's like 0.6 or something percentage points. Um, So what happened was, unfortunately, Pete dropped out. Um, So your campaign ends. And then that was in the spring of 2020. Yep. All of a sudden, it's just like, all of a sudden, you're unemployed, you're done. And this happens to campaign staff all the time. It's very cyclical. Um, and it was clear at that point that there was going to be, you know, one of two nominees, more probably Joe Biden or maybe Bernie Sanders. Um And then especially after, you know, Massachusetts, Joe Biden won Massachusetts, which was never thought to be possible. Um, it became clear that he was nominee and personally, that's who I, I wanted to become the nominee at that point. So you're kind of in this phase where in campaigns, there's this shift from the primary election to the general. And in the general election, these campaigns, the one that wins, you know, just absolutely balloons in size. Every battleground state, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Florida, Arizona, they will get entire teams of staff from 200 to 300 to more um and it t- and it takes a while to staff up so it wasn't actually until i'd say june july even august that these uh campaigns the general campaign can get fully staffed up i was fortunate to be connected to this kind of third party group called digidems um that funds specifically people with technical talent not just data but maybe you have it back uh, a background in it you're a data scientist you're a software engineer who wants to take, you know, six months to work on a campaign and I was able to get hired on by them and then ultimately placed as one of two digidems on the Wisconsin team for Biden. So what this group did, which is, you know, somehow legal there with campaign finance. It's definitely legal, but it's it's a way for them to spend their own money to put essentially volunteer talent on the Biden campaign. Um, across these states to bolster the technical skill set that is oftentimes lacking and too expensive for campaigns to hire. Um, and and I was very fortunate to be put in Wisconsin. I could have been put essentially anywhere in the country. I never went unfortunately because of COVID. Um, it was always like ah oh, two weeks, two weeks maybe we'll see two weeks, and then it just Wisconsin especially over the summer into the fall was really bad. One of the worst um per capita in the country but um i was really fortunate because it, it mattered it really mattered it was a very competitive state um i had wanted to be in in pennsylvania that was like my dream because my family's from scranton and you know that's the whole joe biden mythology is the scranton guy um and we lost uh wisconsin pennsylvania michigan in 2016 so these were the states that I really wanted to be in. I was fortunate to be put on that team.
0: And uh, and uh, so so, I mean, uh, without getting too deep into it, what uh, did I do? Yeah, it was like some of the work that you did. I'd yeah. to here, uh, what that was like.
1: Right. So essentially, you know, when I was an organizer, we didn't just talk to everyone. We didn't just knock on every door that we came across. There are were specific lists of people who you, your campaign, either Democrat or Republican or whatever, what have you, you wanna one, talk to the people you think are mo- most likely to vote for you. And then two, once you have identified those people, you wanna turn them out to vote. Yeah. So there's, there's two real main uh, phases of a campaign. It's persuasion, if you can persuade people, and then mostly in a general, it's turnout. So you wanna turn out people to the polls on election day or you know by absentee, et cetera. So with the data analytics team, a lot of our focus was on kind of creating this universe of voters in Wisconsin, specifically that we wanted our organizing team and our other, you know, our digital ads, et cetera, to target with their voter outreach. Um, and so that was a lot of our job. A lot of that comes from the voter file. So every state has its own voter file. People are always like, how did you get my contact? Like, how do you know, that I voted in 2016, it's all public. You know, who you voted for is not public, but if you're registered to vote, you know, if you voted in a partisan primary, um, when which years you voted in, all of that in every state is public. Uh, All you have to do is buy the data. Some states it's $5, some states it's $10,000. But so most of our job was in targeting and turning out people to vote. And then some of our other job was simply like data management. I know a lot of people uh, use like CRMs, like Salesforce, things like that in their jobs. There are political ones as well, where we keep all these people and all the events they've had and all the actions they've taken. So managing that type of data, making yeah. sure it's clean and people are following standards. You know, training staff and how to use other technical tools that we would use to reach out to people. You know websites and apps that we use on the campaign um, and then a personal favorite of mine was helping the voter protection team, which is a set of lawyers who are there to you know either uh, sue in court you know for redress when it comes to you know voting access or you know who are supporting other volunteer lawyers who are trying to help uh, you know watch. And oversee, you know, ballot counting, et cetera. I helped them uh, prioritize which polling locations they would send approximately a thousand lawyers to on election day across the state, based on you know who we thought would turn out at those locations, you know what demographic characteristics were present, um, mm-hmm. and just who whose vote we could protect and most efficiently and effectively. So it's really like it was a all hands on deck anything that we thought data could help us with um and it's very scrappy it's a campaign it's you build it as you're flying the plane and you're kind of taking it apart as it's landing um on you know fuel zero because you're trying to spend all your budget uh so it's, it's experience that's very much like a startup for people who've worked on startups um and it's 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 very very unique
0: that's cool. <laughs> That's really cool. So uh, the camp, the campaign ended because the um, election happened. Right. Um, the
1: hardest of deadlines. It's it's great. There's no. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I, I've heard it said by a few very smart people that uh, the only non-renewable resource you have on a campaign is time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, hard deadline uh, comes and goes, um, and so once again, your you know, at the end of that, you know. What happens, you know, for, for someone like you, who's working on right?
1: The, what happens? Again, it goes from like 24 seven to zero because, well, not this time, as we all know, it's been quite the few three, three months or so since the election, yeah. but a campaign really, you know, as an organizer and on data, like it's 24 seven, you do not have weekends. Sometimes, you know, you would have a Monday off, um, you're working, you know, 12 plus hour days, there's always more to do, so you, you're just in in the trenches, and then you're done. And um, in Wisconsin, at least, and some other states, there were recounts, so there was some work to to be done. You know, for a month or so. For Georgia, there were there were two runoffs, so some people went to work on that. Um, but I per- I just I had been in it for a year and a half, and you get you get definitely burnt out. Um, yeah. It's something that that happens. Um,
0: it's okay so, to be human. It's okay to yeah, be Yeah,
1: absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's <laughs> not selfish at all. And campaign staff, it, it's funny this, when you speak of like, what's next or like, what do you do? Um, there's always the, like your, your grandparent or your parent or your friends, like, so when are you going to the white house? Or if you win or like, when, what, what you come on, like Joe Biden needs someone. When are you going? And that's just, that's just not how it works. Like there, there's a very funny, there was a funny tweet the other day where it's what people think, and it's like campaign, win, White House. And then what actually happens is you campaign, you win or lose, you have a midlife crisis, and then you try to figure out what's going on next. Uh,
0: so so I'm, I'm, somewhere, I'm
1: somewhere after the midlife crisis and, <laughs> and somewhere before like, actually knowing what I'm doing next.
0: Okay. Yeah, so, so you're, you're assessing right now, it sounds like.
1: Assessing, yeah, yeah. I, um, I mean, a lot of people I know will try to move to DC Um, you know, I would obviously love to move out of my parents' house, um, get a, get a job and just try to have a somewhat, you know, not normal per se. There's no such thing, but, you know, a bit more classic, you know, younger person life where you're living in a city and, you know, you have a weekend every once in a while. Right.
0: Yeah. 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 I hear you. I, uh, I would, I, as much as I love Boston, and I tell my five-year-old son, all the time that Boston's the greatest city in the world. And I mean that when I say that. It is. Um, Yeah, it absolutely is. Um, But a close uh, second is DC. I love that city. It's such a great city. Um, Well, uh, Tanner, I I think that about does it. Um, Those were the questions that I had today. Um, I really appreciate you taking time out and and coming on this morning. Um, it, It was a pleasure talking to you.
1: No, I really appreciate it. I mean, I don't have too much going on. So it's a good good way to start my morning as well. And I would I would just say, like, obviously, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, Democratic or Republican politics. But for people listening, I just I would strongly encourage people to get involved uh, with, you know, public service, electoral politics, etc. You know, Especially if if you're if you're younger, if you're about to graduate, or maybe you're taking a gap year before college, like the the this is the time, like you said, like it gets really hard to to do this type of work once you have any other other real commitments on the table.
0: Yeah, I can back that up because as as much as I uh, may have wanted to get involved recently, it's a little difficult to do with a wife and two children. Yeah,
1: it, no, it, it's it's frankly like impossible. So yeah,
0: it, it's hard. Um, uh quick question for you um and this has to do with uh with uh your your growing up in cohasset um were you a frequenter in the summer of the border street Bridge?
1: yeah see i was i was kind of a goody two shoes kid always got nervous that like the cops were gonna come and you know lock you up put you in handcuffs obviously they don't do that <laughs> no they uh, do but, but, but we we do we do we do jump it we did jump it a lot but um we we would go to sandy beach more often than that we've all, me and my four brother three brothers have all been lifeguards there for many years so oh really definitely definitely fortunate to grow up you know on the south shore on the water um and jump bridges when when safe
0: yeah 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 and just just for the listeners uh, so they don't think that I or Tanner have been committing felonies no uh, no in our free time border Street is this bridge and coasset that in the middle of the summer, if you drive over it, you see like 30 kids, you know, jumping off um, into a, a kind of a part of the harbor. And generally, they're not supposed to do it, so the cops come and just make them please, and then eventually they want to come back, uh, right. just go downtown and grab like, you know, grab some lunch or something, and then you come back.
1: Yeah, and, and if I'm going down, there are a lot of other BCI kids, former uh, graduates who I could uh, bring down with me, so. <laughs>
0: That's funny. Um, Well, no, this was, this was great, Tanner. I really appreciate you coming on. Um, I look forward to uh, staying in touch with you and also hearing what's next for you.
1: Thanks, Rick. It was great to be here.
0: All right. Thanks a lot. That does it for this episode of back to the point. Great conversation. Really appreciated Tanner coming on. So Tanner, I I hope you're listening. Uh, Thank you so much for taking time out, talking to me sharing yourself with, with me and the uh, the listeners. So thank you very much for that. Uh, thanks to Michael Bryan, who helps make it all happen. And most importantly, uh, to the fairy pod mother, Kristen Brophy, who edits this stuff like a wizard and is just super helpful, uh, getting it all uploaded and taking care of all, of all the stuff that I have no idea what I'm doing. So Kristen, as always, Thank you so much. Uh, Oh, and of course, I can't forget to thank all of you for listening. Um, Really appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon.